And if you would please take out your copies of God's Word this morning as we turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 38 today. As we take a look at a, the last teachings of Jesus to his disciples that we read about in Luke's gospel before he goes to the cross. If you remember, when we looked at last week, we noticed the Lord's Supper, how that was instituted. Christ has just instituted the new covenant with his disciples. They have passed around the cup that's to represent his blood that spills out for them. And they've just torn off the piece of bread to represent his body that would be broken for them. And then we pick up in verse 21. Listen carefully because this is God's word. Jesus continues, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves For who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, The rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. By his grace and mercy, may his word be preached to you. Let's go to our God in prayer and ask his blessing on our text one more time. O Lord, 
we have before us a beautiful text, a challenging text, one that goes against what we would expect and how we live. So I ask you to help us to understand it. And most of all, that we would believe it and live in the truth of it. Ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to walk into a restaurant, how would you go about finding the greatest person in the room? You might do so by trying to figure out who looks the most expensive as they're sitting there. Their clothes and their watches or whatever it is, or the, the surf and turf that they've ordered. Or maybe you look for the longest table and see who is it that's sitting at the head of it, it being a company executive or something like that. We have all sorts of criteria for how we would evaluate the greatest person in the room. But at least in our restaurant example, if we were to use the set of criteria that Jesus was to use, we would look for the people that are carrying trays, ones that are mopping up the tables and cleaning up the drinks that the children have spilled onto the floor. It's the waiters, the servers, or to use the biblical term, the term that Jesus uses here, the deacons, the ones who serve. This is, in fact, true greatness. But very few of us live that way. No one has a picture of a butler pinned up on their wall and saying, that's what I want to be. I could ascend to the level of a restaurant waiter. I would have achieved my dreams. Most of us don't think that way. Even fewer of us think of, of that way when we think of serving in our own family homes. Our siblings, our parents, our spouses. Service is just not something that we prize. This was put to the test for me this very morning as our child woke up at 5 a.m. And the first thought as I came into my head when I heard that baby's cry was, I have to preach a a sermon on service later today. What am I going to do? And after waiting 10 more minutes, my wife turned to me and said, I have been up every hour this whole night. Would you please? And yes, I did. She was demonstrating true service, but it's not something that we aspire to. We look to that, especially in our own culture. We look at motherhood of getting up with a child every hour on the hour as something that's far less fulfilling than commanding a company. But that's what we see here in this text. Who is the greatest? Well, let's find out. Let's find out what true greatness looks like. Let's find out what true leadership in that greatness looks like. Now you might say, well, I'm not a church leader. I'm not a leader of any kind. So does this sermon not apply to me? No, it still does apply to you. Because the greatest leader that we see here is Jesus was a servant. He calls us all to this. But he especially calls those of us who would aspire to leadership, especially in the church, that these things should be a part of our lives it's appropriate as we are in the midst of our election of officers season to be considering of these things. Who models these things? Who are we modeling these things as we look in this text together? 
So I have for you our usual two points, but I have a massive curveball and that I have sub points under number two. So it's a big day here. You can see how exciting things are at Knollwood. But here at our first point is that true leadership requires humble service. True leadership requires humble service. And then number two is that true leadership requires Christ. We have the two reasons why. Because leaders are sinners and leaders are needy. So what we're going to look at today and see how this happens in this text. So as we begin in verse 21, we see a contrast to true leadership. This is referencing Judas, who's going to betray Jesus. Far from serving other people at his own expense, he is betraying other people for his own gain. We looked at this in greater detail a couple of weeks ago when we first started this chapter. And here we find, as we saw in the first part, that Jesus is not unaware that this is happening. Jesus knows that his betrayer is at hand. Because, as we see... This is supposed to happen. Verse 22. But the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Do you remember back in Isaiah 53? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. We saw a couple of weeks ago in uh, uh, one of the Psalms. It's a prediction of Judas betraying Jesus. It had to happen this way. But yet notice that Judas does not escape responsibility for this. Because Jesus says, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. This is a cry of anguish, sorrow for Judas, because Judas is going to have to pay the penalty for this crime. Again, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Judas was not being dragged, kicking and screaming to betray Jesus. This is something he chose to do, something he wanted to do in his own sin. But yet this is not something that can throw off the plan of God. Even someone's sin of betraying Jesus can't throw God off of his game. In fact, he uses it to advance his own plans. And that's what we see here. In verse 23, the disciples react to this news. They're all hearing about it for the first time, well, except Judas, of course. And they go around wondering, who is it that's going to betray Jesus? But this discussion doesn't last very long, because there is another more pressing issue at hand. And it's a dispute over who is the greatest. Middle school never really goes away, does it? One-upmanship the whole way through. And we can look at this and say, guys, we've just had the apex of redemptive history. We've just cut a new covenant. Jesus has just told us it's going to cost him his body and his blood. And you're worried about who is the greatest in this? We do this all the time, too. The difference is is we don't have a star historian that's able to look at our conversation and boil it down to what it really is. Because if we think about it, all of the arguments about whose turn it is to do what ultimately boils down to that question. We're too important to take out the trash again. The greatest of these doesn't have to get up with the baby. The greatest of these shouldn't have to put down their hobbies for the evening to lead their family in devotions. That's ultimately what these things boil down to. It's not fair. I shouldn't have to because, well, I'm me. 
Luke's able to cut through all of that. It could have been that perhaps the disciples were trying to be pious as they were making these things. Like, well, it couldn't have been me that, that betrayed because I walked on water. How many of you guys walked on water? Anybody? I can imagine Peter looking around trying to establish that. That's ultimately what it comes down to. They were not focused on what Jesus has just said. Jesus has just said that he's going to serve them with tremendous sacrifice. And instead, they want to argue about what place they'll have in the kingdom of God. So now, Jesus continues and wants to contradict what we usually think. We usually think, as we mentioned at the top, that greatness is the one who has the corner office. Greatness is the one who never has to do anything he doesn't want to do. The one who has all of the money and all of the freedom. That's what it means to achieve for us. But Jesus flips that on its head. And he says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. What Jesus is saying here is this is how leadership typically works in the world. He uses the Gentiles, meaning the outside world, the pagan world, the world that's not Christ. Looks at leadership as something that you lord over somebody else and beat other people with. And in ancient times, he references here, those in authority over them are called benefactors. This was something that they would get other people to call them. Rich and powerful people would dispense money so this way they could appear even better and grab more control in the world. Giving just to get. We're used to that in our society. It's just how the world works. But look what Jesus says, verse 26. But not so with you. Christ calls us to something different. He says, rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Things are different in our American culture, but in this ancient Near Eastern culture, age was revered. The one who was the oldest was the one who had the experience and the wisdom. And it would be the youngers that would serve the older. Our culture flips that order. But this is what Jesus is telling us. That the one who would be esteemed should serve. The one who should be the most important is the one who serves. And again, the word that... He uses here for serves is the same word that we have for deacon, which meant table waiter. Someone who would serve the meal, wait on others. And then Jesus continues. He says, for who is the greater? One who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? And in other words, don't we usually think that the person who is being served is the greater one? But then look what Jesus says. But I am among you as one who what? Who serves. Now, we don't see this in this passage, but in a parallel passage in John chapter 13, this is the same scene. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And I can imagine he does this either before or right after this conversation. This is the lowliest job in the literal world. There wasn't anything else that you could do that would be considered of a lower duty. as washing feet. But that's what Jesus does. 
We know Jesus is the one who created the place. Jesus is the one who has the power to set a new covenant with God. Because he is God. And he says, I am among you as one who serves. This is how Jesus perceives of himself. So how could we not do any different? Are we higher than Christ? Of course not. Well, we are those who served. It's worth mentioning at this point that Jesus is not opposed to authority or that those that have been given authority correctly are not supposed to use it. There's a reason why God gives in his, in later on, as we'll see, qualifications for elders and deacons. There's a reason why he's put those folks in power. But the, point of use, but the point of having power is not to use it for your own selfish ends, but it's to use it to serve. It's the abuse of power, not power itself that Jesus is speaking against, but that all are called to be servants. But this service, for the disciples at least, this comes with a reward. Look what it says here in verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now this particular promise is for the disciples. As we see later on that this Prophecy will be fulfilled in the new kingdom. They will have positions of authority. What that looks like or how that works, we don't get to, we, we don't get to know. But they're being given a special privilege of having authority in this new kingdom. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing for us here either. You see, we get to be a part of this kingdom as well. We get to be rewarded for the service that we do here. Is that something that we're doing out of our own strength? No, it's something that Christ does within us. But he is so gracious is that he is going to be one that is going to give us reward for something that we should just do. Shouldn't expect anything. Yet Christ gives us a kingdom. It can be a little confusing when he talks about judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 tribes of Israel was just another way of saying God's people. So here, Gentiles, means you and me, if you're not Jewish, will be in this kingdom as well. And we'll get to sit and see how the Lord has worked this out. So what have we covered so far? Well, if we've looked in this passage, we've found out that greatness is very different than what we consider it to be. I considered naming this servant, making service great again. Because this is what we're, we don't expect we don't expect service to be great, but that's what he is calling us to do. In fact, one commentator, Leon Morris, put it this way. Jesus is not saying that if his followers wish to rise to great heights in the church, they must first prove themselves in a lowly place. He is saying that faithful service in a lowly place is itself true greatness. That's what it is. In other words... It's not saying, well, pay your dues, work in the youth group, serve in the nursery, and then you might be able to ascend to a level of rulership in the church and get real greatness after you've gone through your hazing process. That's not what this is saying. 
So saying that those who are in the nursery, that's greatness. Those who have vacuumed up the hallways and cleaned the bathrooms before we got here, it's greatness. Those of us that have go out and give the gospel to other people and it's all unnoticed, unremarked, unthanked, that's greatness. That's what he's calling us to here. Because this is the thing that Jesus did. It's not about titles. By way of illustration, there is a story in the Revolutionary War. Soldiers were struggling to put up a, and a, and a, a hill, an embankment, to protect them from bullet fire. And there were not enough men that were able to be there to effectively put this wall up. They just see these guys struggling, and the corporal was sitting on his horse watching them. Someone rode up and said, why aren't you helping your men? And he said, because I am a corporal. It's not my job. The man apologized, got off his horse, and helped the men himself. When they finished their task, he got back onto his horse, looked at the corporal, and said, Corporal, the next time you find that there is a task and not enough men to do it, call your commander-in-chief, and I will come and help you again. It was only then that the corporal realized that it was, in fact, General George Washington. The title didn't matter. Yes, George Washington had the authorities to command all of the army at that moment. But instead, he got off his horse and struggled with the men in the dirt himself. That's the picture of service that he calls us to. That's what made Washington great. Not the title. It was the service that he put in. Now, this sort of leadership requiring humble service is not something that comes on our own. This is not something people are born with. In fact, we're born against this. That's why if we want to serve with, serve in leadership with humble service, we need, as we see in point number two, we need Christ. True leadership needs Christ. We see two reasons why in our subpoints. The first one is that leaders are sinners. And that's what we're going to look at now. Here in verse 31, Jesus turns to Simon, or Peter as we know him. Simon was his original name. Peter was a name that Jesus gave to him. And he says, Simon, Simon. You repeat a name twice in this culture that was a sign of affection. He says, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, the word you there is actually plural. So he starts off with Peter, but he's saying this to all of the disciples, that the devil has demanded to sift all of them. The image that he has is like when you're panning for gold. You're trying to separate out the dirt from the gold. And what Satan is trying to do is to separate the men from their faith. This is Satan's objective. And then Jesus turns to Peter, and all the yous here are now singular. He's speaking to Peter. He says, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, there's a question that we can have here. You say, well, Jesus did pray for Peter, but Peter's faith did fail. He denied him three times. So how does this work? When Jesus is saying this, what he's saying is that his faith will not fail ultimately. 
Peter is going to sin, and sin in a big way. is going to deny Jesus. But then look what he says here. And when you have turned again, Jesus knows Peter's going to sin. But he knows that Peter's going to turn back. Why? Because he's prayed for him. Remember that in Isaiah 53? Not only is he numbered among the transgressors, and I was glad, Jim, you happened to say that in the uh, uh, missions moment, that he prays for us. He is our intercessor. We see this in the New Testament, Romans chapter 8, verse 34, that Jesus prays for us. He prays that Peter's faith wouldn't fail. And though he will experience sin, he's going to give Peter the ability to return once more. And this is the hope of the gospel. And it's one that we have to be honest with. Leaders sin. Far too often we assume because someone graduated seminary that their sin nature was taken away from them the day they graduated. Or because they sat through an elder's class that they are somehow separated from their sin. And that's not the case. The point of that is to not approve and excuse bad behavior. Far from it. But what this is supposed to do is to say we need to be praying for those who are in church leadership. Because they sin. We need to set up structures as we have in the PCA. So that we don't have men who are acting in unaccountable ways. You have one person up at the top with no one else to report to. That's going to go bad every time. That's why in the PCA we spread these things out. Leadership is put out amongst a plurality of men. That's our point. But we should also say, when we hear of leaders sinning, are there some sins that are disqualifying for ministry? Yes, yes, there are. We need to recognize that and be obedient to the scriptures when men sin in that way to dismiss them from that ministry. But when we sin in non-disqualifying ways, there needs to be an openness about it. There needs to be an honesty because we have the gospel, because we have Christ who can turn people back from those things. Even from disqualifying sins, while they might not be able to serve in the church, they, that doesn't mean they're kicked out of heaven. There's hope in the gospel. That's why we need Christ. There's other ways to serve other than what I'm doing here. And it's all from the gospel. This is what we need to do. And the way that we as leaders model that is to, with discretion, of course, to be honest when we do sin, to model the gospel, not only for the people that are in our church, but for the people that are in our homes. If you're a parent or a grandparent, you still sin. And your kids see that. And instead of pretending, as some of us are tempted to do, to pretend like we didn't sin or try to justify our ways around it, we model the gospel and say, yes, dad sinned here. And I'm asking for your forgiveness to return, repent, seek forgiveness, to come back to Christ and say, I've asked God to help me do better and actually try to do better. When you fall, same thing again. It's not picturing weakness. It's picturing dependence on Christ. It's just being honest with what our actual condition is. 
It's being realistic. If Peter can do that, sin in a massive way, be turned, restored, and then use that, as it says at the end of verse 32, to strengthen your brothers, the same can be said of us. It's difficult to do. And there are wise and unwise ways of being honest with our sin. But this is something that we should all be realistic with and recognize that, yes, we have a sin problem, but we also have a Savior to rescue us from those things. So that's our first reason why true leadership requires Christ, because leaders are sinners. The second thing is that leaders are needy. So we're going to turn as we look into verse 35. Jesus, again, speaks to the disciples, and he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He's referring to these earlier parts in Jesus' ministry when he sent the disciples out to go and evangelize in the cities. And he told them, you don't have to bring anything. Instead, you can rely on the people to receive you, to give you a place to stay and food to eat. And that's exactly what they found, people that were hospitable and ready to serve. And what Jesus is saying here is things are about to be very different. Jesus is going to go to the cross. Jesus is going to fulfill the prophecy that we see in Isaiah 35, or excuse me, Isaiah 53. He is going to be seen as a criminal. And everybody else that's with him is going to be equally suspect. So now he's saying... Prepare for yourselves. Things are going to get difficult. And he's emphasizing the point of this danger when he gets to the swords. If you don't have one, you should sell your jacket and get yourself a sword. Many have used this passage to try to say, well, we all should be armed as we go about our Christian experience. That's not what he's saying here. As also mentioned by Jim, you did a great job today introducing my sermon, Jim. That our weapons are not carnal. That we fight with spiritual weapons. That's why when we get to the end here, when he is saying to prepare yourselves, buy your swords. And they say, look, there's two swords here. And he says, it's enough. What he's not saying is two swords are sufficient for what you need to do. He's trying to drop this topic because the disciples have completely missed it. How do we know they completely missed it? Well... If we were to take his statement literally, let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. If they only have two, that means they're ten short. Everyone else should go out and buy a cloak, but that's not what Jesus says. And also, when Peter tries to use one of those swords later on, when he is opposing the arrest of Jesus and chops off the servant's ear, Jesus tells him, put the sword away and heals the ear. So what Jesus is trying to communicate to them is that these things are going to be difficult. Prepare. And preparation is not done by sharpening your sword. Preparation is done by getting into his word, relying on Christ, not on what you can amass on your own of material possessions, but what Christ can do for you. Does that mean we don't prepare? Does that mean we don't have a plan for the future? No. But that's not what we put our ultimate trust in. 
This is not to say that Christians are anti-weapon, that you can't protect yourself. That's not what he's saying. But that's not what we put our ultimate trust in. Unless the Lord protects, can have all the swords or ammunition in the world, we need Jesus. We often pass on this too. We like things we can hold. I can understand the disciples. They hear things are going to be getting hard. The ability to grab a little tighter around a sword just helps you feel a little better. Knowing tough times are coming, being able to grab onto the checkbook a little bit tighter feels good. But that's not what's going to prepare us. Notice later on when Jesus is praying in the garden and he says, pray with me that you would have be well armed enough with your swords. No. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. That was Jesus's point. It didn't fail because of the lack of knapsack or a lack of swords. It failed because of lack of faith. That's what we should be turning to as we think about this passage. Is to turn to Christ. Realize we're not going to find humble service on our own. But that's going to need that's going to come by spending time with Jesus. Because you see, Jesus is saying something a little bit more profound than even as we've seen. So we take one last look. We'll finish with this. In Luke 22, when he says, The scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. At one level, that this passage, what he's referring to, is he's going to be seen as a sinner, as a criminal, someone who's worthy to be crucified. Because of that, it's going to be dangerous and hard for the disciples. But there's more. When Jesus is going to be numbered with the transgressors, he means that he's going to be seen this way, not only by the Romans, not only by the Jews, but by God himself. God himself is going to look at Jesus as if Jesus was the most disgusting sinner that ever walked the face of the earth. The most obscene creature In the world, Jesus is going to appear to be because he takes on all of our sins. He was numbered as one of us and took all of those sins onto himself, cutting off a relationship with his father, being forsaken by God for a time. And he did that for us. That is humble service. So how do you become a humble servant? Recognize someone has already done that for you. There is no way that you could serve someone else as much as Jesus has served you. It's not possible. None of us are deserving of that level of service. To be told, you have sinned, broken all of God's commands, and deserve eternal punishment, but I'll take that eternal punishment for you so that you can go free. That's what Jesus offers to you. And it's by meditating on that, that humble service is possible. To recognize you have been served. So how else could we live any other way? So what's our takeaway here? Our takeaway is that true greatness is true service. 
And no one has modeled that better than Christ. And as you leave today and think about how you can be a servant for other people, keep in mind that when you fail, and you will, Christ has been the ultimate servant. He has served, and you get to ride on that record too. You already have an A-plus in service because you have Jesus' A-plus. So now, go and live in that reality. Grow into that sweater that Christ has given to you, the sweater of righteousness. Yes, you're too small for it. And no, you'll never fit into it perfectly. But grow. Remember what Christ has done for you, and only then will you be able to be a servant of others. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this time that we've had together. As we remember the humble service that you gave to us, no one was higher than you, and yet no one came lower than you. So I ask that as we go our separate ways today, that we would be reminded of how much has been done for us, and that we would use the energy that God grants to us and that we would turn and serve others out of gratitude for what's been done. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.